Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Hope you're all enjoying your Wednesday. And as you can tell, this is not Al. This is his producer, Brian. Al's out today. We'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing. We have other things to talk about as we continue our conversations on the things that matter most. How about sharing the faith one person at a time? Why do so many Catholics find themselves too intimidated to share the faith? Uh, After all, Jesus and the apostles didn't have social media, television. They didn't even have Catholic radio. And they changed the world forever. Karen Edmonston joins us with the evangelization tools that brought her from atheism to Catholicism and how she uses them today. Karen is, as I said, a former atheist who converted to the Catholic Church at the age of 35. She's a freelance writer and the author of After Miscarriage, Deathbed Conversions, You Can Share the Faith, and Through the Year with Mary. She has contributed to several other books, including A Little Way of Homeschooling, and you can follow her at KarenEdmonston.com. Later on in this hour, we hear another testimony. Uh, Father Rob Galea will take us on a journey from despair to hope. Uh, He was a lonely, miserable teenager, wanted to feel like he belonged, so he joined a gang. He went clubbing, he drank, he stole things, he lied, and his reckless lifestyle ultimately led him to hide in fear for his life from his other gang members. He was so desperate that he hid in a dark bedroom and considered ending it all. But a phone call from his grandmother led him to turn his life around. Uh, Father Rob Galea joins us later in this hour with all of that story. Also wanted to take this opportunity to offer congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Aquinas Communications. Uh, 98.3 FM in Dubuque, Iowa is celebrating eight years with us this week. Congrats to Tom Oglesby and his team at KCRD from all of your friends at EWTN. Also, if you're in the Southeast Michigan, Northern Indiana, Ohio area, wanted to invite you once again to our annual Familiaris Consortio lecture series at Gabriel Richard High School in Ann Arbor, continuing this conversation on gender dysphoria. Uh, it's going to be a great event. It's uh, Saturday, March 2nd, and you can learn more at AveMariaRadio.net. Let's talk more about the evangelization after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Wednesday, February 21st, it's the Feast of St. Peter Damien. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria family of funds at AveMariaFunds.com. A Haitian bishop is in stable condition following an explosion in Port-au-Prince. Bishop Pierre-André Dumas, vice president of the Haitian Bishops' Conference, was injured in the Haitian capital Sunday evening. Initial investigations indicate that the explosion was caused by a gas leak. This is the latest incident to hit the Catholic community in the Caribbean island that has been rocked by gang violence, murder, and political instability. The State Department is defending a memo urging staffers to use gender-neutral language. 
A recent memo urged staffers to steer clear of gendered language when possible, such as brave men and women on the front lines, and instead use phrases such as brave first responders or brave soldiers. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller told reporters the memo is intended to encourage people to be more respectful of others and use the terms with which others are comfortable. The guidance also reportedly runs through a list of gendered phrases that the department says should be avoided, including manpower, you guys, and ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lisa Taylor. Harvard is condemning an image circulating on social media by campus pro-Palestinian groups. The image is a cartoon that shows a hand with the Star of David and a dollar sign holding nooses around what appear to be images of former president of Egypt and boxer Muhammad Ali. Harvard's interim president says disagreements on the Israel-Hamas war is to be expected, but it is offensive when the disagreement devolves into demonization of individuals because of their religion, race, or nationality. And New York Attorney General Letitia James says she'll seize Donald Trump's assets if he doesn't pay up after a civil fraud trial. Last week, a judge ordered the former president to pay $355 million, conspiring to manipulate his net worth to receive tax and insurance benefits. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Catholics often ask themselves, what is my responsibility in sharing my faith in Christ? And uh, if I do that, am I, do I, will I appear to be imposing my beliefs on others? Uh, is sharing my faith in Jesus the same as sharing the gospel? Uh, is what's effective for heaven's sakes uh we have big crusade style evangelism that goes on we've got small groups how important is it to have one-on-one uh communication and sharing well with me right now is karen edmiston a former atheist who converted to the catholic faith at the age of 35 she's a freelance writer and she's joined us before with her really uh intriguing book deathbed conversions she's also written a number of other books we're looking today at you can share the faith, reaching out one person at a time. Hey, Karen, great to have you back here. Thanks. Hi, Al. It's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. When you were uh, an atheist, what did you think about Christians and evangelism? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, it, it's, there's a, a couple of parts to that answer. The big picture, looking at what I thought Christianity was, um, it seemed kind of ridiculous to me. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed kind of simple-minded. Um, obviously, I had not plunged the depths of Catholic thinkers at that time. Right. right. <laughs> it's anything but simple-minded. Um, but from the outside looking in, um, and particularly looking at the, the very broken body of Christ with our thousands and thousands of denominations. It was, you know, it was very confusing. Um, But the second part, I said it's kind of a two-part answer. The second part is, without my knowing it, um, I was being formed by Christians with one-on-one relationships, people who were Christian, who did take their faith seriously. Um, And as individuals, I I knew some Christians that I really admired. So it's kind of a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on there where I, I was you know, condemning sort of the big picture, but, you know, on, on the small level, on the one-to-one relationship level, um, there definitely were things that I could admire, even though I didn't want to admit that for a long time. So you were watching? 
Yes, I, w- I was watching, exactly. And, you know, there's a chapter in this book where, where I say, um, don't forget that you're being watched, yeah. um, or do remember that you're being watched. Um, and interestingly, I, I read a review of this book um, somewhere, I can't remember if it was Goodreads, or where someone said that thinking that actually made them feel worse. They thought, oh, no, people are, are <laughs> people are like, you know, just like dissecting my every move, and now I'm even more worried about how to evangelize. And I really, I really did not mean it that way. <laughs> Don't want to scare anybody off with this. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but because what I meant by that really was, most, first of all, most of the, the observation I was doing was subconscious. I wasn't consciously keeping track and tallying. Right. But somewhere deep down inside, you know, I was, I was seeing what people who call themselves Christians, what they do. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who call themselves Christians who, um, who were not particularly setting a good example for me personally, and there were others who, who were. And what, what that, you know, quote-unquote good example was, was their honesty, their authenticity, their true and genuine love for the faith. Um, if someone was setting out to try to show me a good example, that probably didn't go over as well. People who simply <laughs> right. were, their, you know, themselves, you know, right. if they were just being real, that made it. That made a big difference. Well, I think I I, I think the chapter is really uh, very astute. I mean, what you're doing is you're encouraging people to recognize that the way they live is morally and spiritually significant, not only to their own formation, but to what they're communicating about the nature of the faith. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. And and that it doesn't have to be evangelization. I think so often that that's what it is. It isn't. I'm going to go out on the streets and grab some people and share the gospel with them, and they're going to convert. It doesn't work that way. Um, maybe it works that way occasionally. <laughs> yeah. There's the occasional, you know, road to Damascus moment or, um, you know, incredible and instantaneous conversions. But I think for most of us, um, it, it comes down to one-on-one relationship, and that's what Jesus was all about. You know, he started with 12 people. Yeah. He started yeah. one-on-one forming those disciples who went on then, you know, to form other people, but always in relationship. And so, yeah, that makes a huge difference. Uh, I remember back in college when I first had an adult conversion to Christ and uh, began immediately uh, sharing what had happened and what I understood about the Gospels and the resurrection. And, And for the first few years, I had the opportunity to help a number of men and women uh, come to faith and baptism, and well, five or ten years into it, I noticed I wasn't getting the same kind of response from people that I used to get, mm-hmm. and it dawned on me, that's because everybody I knew was already a Christian. Mm. I wasn't hanging around with the right people anymore. <laughs> I wasn't keeping any <laughs> quote, I wasn't keeping bad company anymore. <laughs> <laughs> What what a great point that is, because, yeah, you know, if we really limit who we're going to allow into our lives, if we only allow in the people that we think, you know, are good enough to to make it through the bubble and share that bubble with (laughs) us, how are we ever, how are we ever going to spread the word to somebody else who needs it? You know, and that's what I, part of my motivation in writing this book was, you know, it feels like trying to pay back the many people who were so, so good to me for many years. Um, when I didn't believe. Um, there's a, a friend I mentioned, he and I met in high school, 
and became the best of friends, like to the point where people always thought we were dating. We were like, no, <laughs> we are like brother and sister. Uh-huh. <laughs> Get that part of it straight. Um, but he was raised Catholic and um, fell away from it for a time, came back to it, um, learned more about it, embraced it fully. And so it, parts of his story are sprinkled throughout this book as well because because he was always, um, even when he was fallen away, in many ways he was that beacon of Christ's light in my life. Um, and he was someone who never judged me, even when he came back to the Catholic faith, and I was still far from it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I never felt condemned by yeah. him. I felt very much accepted simply as his friend for who I was. Yeah. And, you know, had he, had he limited his contacts in high school to, you know, the good Catholics that went to school with him, we would never have become friends, and then I would never have become Catholic. Right. Um, right. And not that I take credit for my husband's conversion, um, but, but this does tend to spread. And, you know, my husband, five years after I came into the Catholic Church, my husband came into the Catholic Church. So, you know, this, this effect of one to one to one to one yeah. is um, it's much bigger, I think, than we sometimes give it credit for. I've talked to people who are afraid to fly the flag uh, that they're Catholics because they don't think they've got their life together, uh, that they have struggles, and they're afraid that people will think that, well, if that's what the Catholic way of life is like, it's not very good because, well, I'm just not, I just don't have it together. What do you say to people like that? Yeah, I I think that, um, you know, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier. The honesty and the authenticity are the most important things. Mm -hmm. And I think where we get into trouble is when we start thinking that we do have to present a perfect veneer to the world. Um, (laughs) We're in a a very trying time right now with our church and with our faith, where it it needs to be all about authenticity and transparency and honesty. And that's true from, you know, the hierarchy way up there, you know, on down and throughout the laity. Um, I think it really is being honest about the fact that, you know, not, not only is the Church imperfect, it always will be. The Church on Earth will always be imperfect, and there will always be the wheat and the tares. And, um, and, and we as individuals will always be imperfect. You know, there was, there was one perfect Christian um, yeah. He died on the cross, and then there was, you know, one sinless Christian, <laughs> his mother. <laughs> right. The rest of us are are struggling to the end. Um, I, I believe. I think it's, you know, it's a constant journey. We don't ever. I don't think we should pretend that we're done, or we, or pretend that we're perfect, because that. I think again, that actually tends to turn people off. Yes. Because they know we're not perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so and- if we're trying to pretend we are and put that appearance on, we we just come off as fake. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. And, and that applies to uh, the Church as, as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Defending the faith doesn't mean whitewashing the Church's problems. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, the, the imperfect Church is always going to be with us. Um, the, the final chapter in this book is, the, the title of that chapter is Don't Pretend the Pilgrim Church is Perfect. Yeah. Um, and we know it's not. (laughs) You know, I I start that chapter with a quote from James Joyce, a a quote that's attributed to him anyway, which is, here comes everybody. (laughs) Yes, I've always loved that. Catholic Church. Yeah. (laughs) And it's so true, you know, there are so many different kinds of people. It's a universal church. 
Um, you know, we see we see the faith manifested in different ways all over the world, and there are all kinds of imperfections too. Um, but what it always keeps coming back to is like, okay, yeah, the church is imperfect; it's full of sin. But where do I start? You know, and I can only start with me, and and the little circle that God has put in my life. And, you know, working on myself, I have to work on myself first, yeah. and the imperfections that I see in me. Uh, is there a language barrier between Christians and non-Christians? Uh, I mean, oh, I think, yeah. yes, there definitely is. I, I talk about that a bit in this book, too. I, I encourage Catholics, um, whether you've been Catholic your whole life, or I've now been Catholic for a long time, um, and, you know, you forget sometimes. There's a whole separate vocabulary right. that can kind of cut you off from people. We're, we're speaking church speak, right. and someone that's on the outside of that, um, it's not that they don't understand the words or the actual definitions, but they, they might not understand the context. So I think it's really careful, um, excuse me, I mean, I think it's really important to be careful in how we choose our words, not in a calculated way, and again, not in an inauthentic way, but in a compassionate way to just be aware, like, this person may never have been exposed to this, you know, things that I, I was ignorant about before I became a Christian and later uh, before I was received into the Catholic Church. It wasn't that I had willfully rejected a lot of those things. Some of them I'd never heard of, and I just needed people to kindly and compassionately explain them to me. No, that's a good point, uh, because we we don't... We, we're ignorant ourselves of, of, of some of the great mysteries of the faith, and uh, we're struggling to understand them. And uh, much of the language that we use to help one another understand more deeply doesn't really work uh, outside uh, our own community, and so we, we do need that work of translation. Uh, were you aware of that when you were an atheist, that there was this linguistic divide? Um, you know, to a degree, I would I would hear people talk about uh, the faith, and and I I kind of say, wait, whoa, 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 like, yeah. okay, back up, you know, <laughs> yeah. the friends that I felt comfortable with, you know, other people I simply dismissed. But if I could say like, whoa, wait, back up and explain that to me, and they did, it it helped so much. Karen, thanks for being with me today. We'll talk again. It, right, was, it was too long, too long since the last time. <laughs> I'll, I'll call yeah, you soon. Thanks. You again. All right. Thanks, Al. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I said to the churches one day, what do you think you're going to look like in heaven? Oh, some of them had absolutely magnificent ideas. I didn't think of one of them. So I got desperate because then my turn came. I didn't know what to say. And so in desperation, I said, what do you think I'll wear in heaven? And they all said with one voice, armor. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. It's not as scary as I thought it was. It's a much more warm and open place, and God really is about love. It's not about the rules and the things that I remember as a young child. It really is about the love that God has for each one of us that's so um, deep and wonderful. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org. What composes a society? The Catholic Catechism says human beings need to live in society. It is there that we develop our potential. The Catechism defines a society as a group of persons bound together by a principle of unity that goes beyond each one of them. A society endures through time. We owe loyalty to the communities that we are part of, of which are defined by their purpose. 
All social institutions, however, ought to have the human person as its principal, subject, and end. The societies of family and of state are necessary to the nature of man. Other societies, such as voluntary associations and institutions, are encouraged for economic, cultural, athletic, and professional reasons. The Church warns against certain types of socialization wherein excessive intervention of the state threatens personal freedom and initiative. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, Rob Gallio was a lonely, miserable teenager. He wanted to feel like he belonged, so he joined a gang. He went clubbing, he drank, he stole things, he lied. His reckless lifestyle ultimately led him to hide in fear for his life from other gang members. He was so desperate in those days that uh, he spent time in his dark bedroom contemplating the ending of his life. But a phone call from his grandmother led him to turn his life around, and I thought it was important for him to share his story with us. Father Rob Gallia is the founder of FRG Ministry, and you can uh, follow him at frgministry.com. Father, good to have you with me. It's so good to, good to be on the show with you. Uh, you uh, grew up in Malta? 
That, that's right. So I currently live in Australia, but grew up in, in Malta. Malta um, is like in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, a beautiful, wonderful island. Um, 98, 98% Catholic at yeah, the time while that's I was right. growing up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What is it like living in a country in which 98% of the uh, population affirm or at least confesses the Catholic faith? Well, it's very much immersed in the culture, so it's in everything you do. So um, it, it, churches would be full on a weekend. Um, there was a Catholic law. Shops never opened on a Sunday. Um, it's a very um, statues. There were people praying on the street. The very um, it's very much immersed in the culture, but not necessarily immersed in the heart of the people. Right, right. How old were you when you left Malta? I was twenty-three years old oh. when I left Malta. Okay, so and, so in, you grew up in a, a population ninety-eight percent Catholic, and obviously that didn't keep you from being lonely and miserable. No, it didn't. You see, this is the thing where I used to go, um, I was brought up in this Catholic home. Um, by the time I was about 40, um, even earlier, 13 years old, I, I just had a um, sort of a rebellious um, re- reaction to, to the discipline of my parents. You see, my dad was always really, really strict with me. And um, so I decided um, just I didn't want to get involved with anything my parents were involved in, and that included their faith. Um, so I just moved away from the age of 13 till, till 17 years old. I didn't step into a church. Wow. And you said you were rebellious. In, was that simply because you didn't want to identify with the Catholic faith, because you identified the faith with your father, and you were in rebellion against your well, dad? Well, I rebelled against my family. I rebelled. Um, it all stems from this need to to be loved and accepted. Now, it's not that my parents didn't love me and didn't accept me. It's just I was just angry um, deep down inside. My dad was always very strict. He was a disciplinarian. Yeah. And he would um, put boundaries on me, and I just interpreted that as as uh, an act of 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 him wanting to take away my my fun, wanting to take away my joy. Mm-hmm. And so um, him being stricter, one, I, I just would try and spend as much time away from him and as much time uh, with friends. And so even the fact that he put curfews on me, I would jump outside my window uh, when I was 13 years old and, and walk to nightclubs. Now, Malta is a Catholic country, but we have a place, a couple of places in Malta, for example, where we have about 150 nightclubs door to door. But our tourism is very much a party tourism. So we have um, the biggest street party in the world, <laughs> hosted, hosted about 10 minutes from my house, wow. my parents' house. Uh, so, when, so you would participate in all the activities associated with nightclubs, music, uh, uh, substance abuse? Absolutely. So this is where it started. It started with just hanging out with some friends. And then eventually, you know, I started smoking and by the time you were 14, a lot of my 14-year-old friends were smoking, and I just wanted to be one step ahead. I wanted to right. be recognized. I wanted right. to be seen as cool, you know? So yep. I started smoking um, some weed, and from weed I got into party drugs, and from party drugs to harder drugs. And by the time I was 15 and 16 years old, I, I was pretty much addicted um, to that and, and the drinking and the party lifestyle. 
In your own mind, were you, could you distinguish between Jesus and the what you consider to be the oppressive social environment that your father had created? Well, it is um, at that time um, I possibly could have, um, and there was, I, I don't recall, but I wouldn't be surprised if I still prayed my night prayer. Yeah, okay. and I still spoke to Jesus. In mm-hmm. fact, but I don't think that I had had my own encounter of faith. It was still my parents' faith. I hadn't um, had my own encounter of Jesus, my own encounter of, and my own relationship with Jesus. It was always something that was given to me, and and maybe not not quite internalized. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you, uh, it sounds like you began to descend into uh, su- such recklessness that you at one time feared for your life. How, how did that happen? Yes. Well, the, that uh, started off with me um, hanging out with um, a group of friends. One of the things that I got into was was stealing. Okay. Now, again, this started off because I wanted to, my friends to think I was cool, you know, I didn't need any of the stuff that I stole, but one day I was in a, a store and I stole something, it was a bicycle shop, and um, I ran out and a group of friends ran out after me and um, they catch up with me and I remember my best friend, uh, he tripped me to the ground and he started to punch me in the face and I was there on the floor um, and thinking, what's going on here? And so, and as he was punching me, he was saying, we've had enough. We said, enough. We don't want to hang out with you anymore. Every time we're with you, they told me, um, we're just watching our back. And so what they did, decided to do was to stop hanging out with me. And um, I, couldn't, I had to keep going out because I, I couldn't stand staying home. Mm-hmm. So I would go out and the people that I would hang out with were the, the people who would sell me the drugs. Mm-hmm. And as I hung out with them, these were the gang members. So yes. These were, they'd go around with guns and they'd go around. Now, this is a Catholic country. Um, I'm in Chicago. It maybe would be something uh, currently, so maybe that would be um, seen as something n- not so big, but it was it was massive, that the fact that these guys would, um, in, a, in a country that no one would ever see a gun, these guys would be with guns and knuckle dusters, flick knives. And they'd go around and just start fights for no reason. Yeah, yeah, and um, w- one day um, I had said a lie about the head gang, the gang leader, mm. and he found out about it. And I'm sitting in a nightclub, 16 years old, which is the legal age to be in a nightclub in Malta. Okay. And I'm sitting there in this nightclub, and a group of friends come in and say, "Rob, quickly get out of here because um, Chris, his name is Chris, and Chris was looking for you." And so I ran home and I locked myself at home. And um, and they, my this group didn't find me straight away. They found my best friend, and they they um, sent him. They beat him up so badly, he ended up in intensive care in hospital. Wow! And these guys were looking for me, and I'm terrified. And it was at this time where I locked myself in my room for six to eight weeks, and I just I remember just harming myself and just wanting to die and oh. thinking of ways I could end my own life. I hated who, who I had become. And the thing is, my, my mother cared so much, my dad cared so much, and they would see my pain, but I just was so angry. I couldn't see their love, I couldn't see their care, and I just thought nobody cared. And I, I just wanted to die. And it was a really, really dark moment in, in my life. 
But you know what? Even in hindsight, I'm so grateful for even those dark moments in my life. Is that when you got that phone call from your grandmother? Yes. Yeah, so this was, um, I was in my room, and so every day I would just go to my, my room, and I, I remember kneeling down on my bed and just rocking on my bed, just wishing this pain, this emptiness, this loneliness, this depression would leave me, but it just wouldn't, not for one second. And I remember thinking that if I don't do something about this, I'm going to take my own life. And so I was just looking for opportunity to get out. And it was at this time I overheard a telephone call, which was my grandmother calling my mother mm. to invite my sister to, to a youth group. And when I overheard this, the first thing that uh, it was triggered was the rejection in me, thinking, why didn't she invite me? Now, the reality was she didn't invite me because she knew I wouldn't go. <laughs> right, and, right. But again, just the rebellion in me said, no, I'm going to go. And so <laughs> I, I went to this youth group, and, and that was the sort of the first doorway to, to coming back to hope. Really? What did you see there that made the faith plausible? I mean... You you don't sound like you were a great candidate um, to slip into a youth group at that point. So I'm curious, what caught your attention? Well, I'd say that the, the first thing was the community. There was a group of people there, and everyone was just so joyful. Yeah, Everyone was so happy, and everyone was so welcoming. And I'm thinking, look, I have no idea who you are, but I, and I, having had the depression experience, depression, um, I, I wanted to sit at the back. I didn't want to talk to anyone. But I just remember staring, standing at the back, thinking, I, I need to keep away from these guys, but thinking deep down, I want what they have. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. the joy that they have. I want the sense of love they have, the sense of community that they have. So that was the first thing. But then there was something else that was sort of like the, the, the second punch that, that completely knocked, knocked me out. And that was, there was a, a few weeks in, I kept going to the shooting. It, I somehow didn't feel anything while I was there, but mm-hmm. every time I went home, I, I would sense some little more hope and some little yeah. more joy. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a, a doctor, a medical doctor, who stood at the front and started to talk about Jesus. And he started to talk about Jesus as though he knew him. Yes. And I was just so impressed, not by what he said, but by the fact that he was talking about Jesus as though he had just had a conversation with him. I'm thinking, how could this be? You know, Jesus mm-hmm. died 2,000 years ago. Yeah. But what happened was, he, he, this love he had for God, and again, I remember thinking, I want that love. And I went home, and I locked myself in my room, as I did every single day, but this time I sat down on a chair, and I tapped the chair in front of me, I put another chair in front of me, and I said, Jesus, sit down, I want to talk to you. <laughs> and that was my first real encounter of, of and I did this every day, every day, and that was the beginning um, I, I, of, of real hope and of real peace that started to enter into my heart. Father, hold it there. We'll take a quick break and come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Father Rob Galea. The book is called Breakthrough, A Journey from Desperation to Hope. He's sharing with us his uh, encounter with Jesus, uh, and we're going to move on, of course, to his discerning priesthood. I'm Al Cresta.
This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So many people call themselves Christian, call themselves Catholic, call themselves Evangelical, whatever, and they're nothing more than members of the Church of what's happening now, as Slip Wilson used to say. You want direction, you want guidance, go to the source. Go to Jesus, go to Scripture, go to the Church teachings. Not to Whoopi Goldberg, not to, and we pray for her, but Nancy Pelosi's version of Catholicism or Joe Biden's version of Catholicism or any other politician that holds fast to their quote-unquote Catholic faith, yet consistently, consistently and blatantly not just speaks against the church, but acts against the church. We need to pray for these people, and we need to encourage bishops to stand up for the truth and not be afraid. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. John 14. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. 
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Rob Galea. His story is told in Breakthrough, a journey from desperation to hope. Uh, we haven't talked yet about uh, his, his uh, amazing popularity in the world of popular music, but that'll come a little bit later as we move on. But uh, so you, you now, you have a chair, you put the chair in, you're at home, you put a chair for Jesus, you sit opposite that chair, and you begin speaking with him. And did he hear you? Well, I would pray every day, and I would speak for a couple of minutes to, to God in this empty chair. And I didn't necessarily feel anything, but again, every time I left that place, I just felt that little more hopeful, mm. that little more mm-hmm. joyful. And, and I kept going to that chair every day. Uh, but one day something happened. I had my very first encounter with God, which was, in a sense, a supernatural encounter. But um, God used my imagination. And I, I was sitting down in this chair, and I just sensed that there was someone sitting down in the chair in front of me. I didn't see anything, but I just sensed that there was someone else yes. sitting And I remember standing up and getting so angry because I was angry at God. Why did God allow me to go through this pain, this suffering, through this violence in my life? And and I just stood up and I started pointing at the chair. But again, in my imagination, this time I did see a a figure sitting down in this chair with a tear coming down his face. And I, I just remember again thinking, why are you crying I should be the one crying. And I knew that it was God, it was the Holy Spirit, somehow the presence of God right there. Mm. And I just, for one moment, this, this figure looked at me, and I realized that this, these tears were not tears because I was bullying them because I was angry, but because, because they loved me. It was, they, they were my tears. Mm. And I, just, I remember just falling to my knees, and I, I just feeling so loved. And at first, it was, I started crying, and it was such a painful cry. Um, and eventually, I just, just the cry became louder and louder and louder to the point where I spent two, almost three hours just crying on my knees. Wow. And just as the cry went on, just feeling more and more loved, more and more um, em- embraced by, by this love of God. And I got up from, from that time of crying, from that encounter, just a new person wanting and saying, God, this is it. I've experienced this love. This is what I've been looking for. And this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life living for. Wow. Did you te- who did you tell about this? Well, no one at first, because I didn't know who to tell. And so I kept going back to this youth group. And every time I went to the youth group, I was feeling that same love. So I started to make connections. That, hey, <laughs> this, is, this is the same God. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, as I continued, eventually, um, I started to get deeper and deeper in conversation also with my mother. You see, I, I believe so much that this encounter and this um, experience in the youth group was because of the prayer of my mother. Well, she, well I used to be um, harming myself and kneeling on my bed. She was kneeling outside my room praying for me and wow. crying for me. And yes. she tells me today that she used to pray and cry out to God for me, and every time she prayed, it seemed to get worse, but she continued, and she persevered, and I honestly believe that I am here today, even as a priest, because of the prayer and the perseverance prayer, the the persistent prayer of my mother. Did your father, uh, was your father aware of what was happening 
spiritually with you? Well, I think he was aware of what was going on. He knew, I know he knew of the addiction. I know he knew of, of the, the pain and, and the depression. But I think I had reached a point in my life, um, in, in my relationship with him, where he, he, he also felt he couldn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but my mother had a, door, uh, a foot in the door. Like, she, she could still reach out, and she continued in, in, in her prayer. My dad prayed for me too, and and today, like I'm really close to my father. I'm really, um, he's my greatest supporter. He's so proud of me, and he yeah. supports me in so many ways. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, when did you, you know you are known as quote the singing priest because of your appearance on Australia's version of the X Factor? Um, when did you decide to take up uh, popular singing and songwriting? Well, I started singing um, in my parish uh, with the youth group. So the youth group used to lead a liturgy, used to lead a mass um, in, in our parish. And so I, I, they needed someone to play the guitar. So I, I, I didn't play the guitar at the time, but what I did was I just volunteered to try and learn. And so I grabbed the guitar and I used to watch MTV, music television, and just learn chords from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And eventually I, I learned a few chords and started playing in the youth group, I started playing music um, in, in the liturgy, and eventually, what happened was I got a, um, a record deal with a company in the in England, in the United Kingdom, and from there I got signed with Sony Records in Australia, um, where I got to sing for Pope Benedict at the time as World Youth Day, and um, it just started to take off. And um, eventually, I find myself speaking at. Um, hundreds of schools across the world. You know, people are inviting me to conferences and schools to sing and to speak and to preach. And eventually, um, the X Factor actually contacted me and asked me to audition. Oh, okay. And so um, the voice in, in the United States called me, and then the voice in Australia, then the voice, and then the X Factor. And I kept saying no, because I didn't want to be known as a pop singer. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. And I was already a seminarian at this time, so, and so, but eventually I said, look, listen, I'll do the audition. And um, that was my agreement, just to do the audition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept getting through and through and through, and so eventually <laughs> uh, uh, I, I did have to pull the plug and decide to leave the show, because I just, um, deep down inside, you know, I, honestly, I, I didn't want to be a pop star. Right. I wanted to be a priest, and, yeah. and I wanted to use my music to proclaim Jesus, and, sure. and not myself. Yeah. Well, when did you begin to discern that you may have a call to priesthood then? Well, it's, I didn't want to be a priest. I, had a, I was in a relationship eventually, a girl from the youth group, and we went out for four years, and we were in a, a serious sort of relationship, but eventually... Um, I I was on tour playing music, leading worship, and um, just uh, in Italy. And as I was playing this this music, um, I met a priest there who was just so full of life and so full of love, and he was surrounded by young people. And I remember thinking again at that point, thinking, I, I, Jesus, I I'll do whatever you want, but I don't want to be a priest. Please don't call me to be a priest. <laughs> but I remember leaving that concert thinking, but if I'm anything like this guy. I'll consider it. Interesting. 
So at least you, at least you had a picture. At least you had a picture of what a good priest could be, right? Yes, but it wasn't. It was just he was just so real to me. Mm-hmm. He was just so real, so human, and that's what I connected with his humanity. Yeah. Um, and and it was just so wonderful and so beautiful the way he loved people, the way he loved the priesthood, and the way he, he just loved God and others. So did you? Um, how? When did you decide then that you were really going? to pursue priesthood, or attend seminary at least. How old were you by then? Well, then a couple of, I can't, this was two years into my relationship, and then eventually I just started to bring it up um, with my girlfriend, maybe more often than she was comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so eventually I, we decided to break off the relationship just so I could give this a go, so I could give this a try, to put my heart at rest so and to see if this was, for me, or whether married life was for me. Um, and so eventually I entered the seminary in a proper duty here for, for just to give it a go for six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, uh, at the end of the six months, I was more in love with serving God, more in love with Jesus than I had ever been. And wow. I, I just wanted to pursue this. Wow. And uh, I did. Uh, I continued and I never looked back. Um, she she's now married and has asked me to preside. Has asked me to preside at her wedding. So this is we're, <laughs> we're still very good friends. That's beautiful. But it, it, yeah, but I love. I'm I'm just so grateful. Um, for, in fact, one of the things I just spoke about and tweeted about is, is that if I had a thousand lifetimes, I choose to be a priest in each one. I love absolutely love that, um, and I'm so honored that God has called me to the priesthood. Well, you're, uh, I'm looking here at some notes, and your ministry reaches more than 200,000 young people a year. Uh, It's called the Stronger Youth Program in Australia, and so what is that? Is that primarily speaking, or do you also perform? Well, so um, I I, I also founded sort of a youth ministry within our diocese, which runs across Australia. Um, but Australia has a very has a very small Catholic population. So mm-hmm. what happens is, um, I get I spend I work full time in evangelization. So I travel around the world. I work in a parish, but spend um, a good number of months tra- traveling around the world, speaking at schools and mm-hmm. youth conferences. So I speak. I'm a speaker, but I also I use music through as I speak. Um, and I talk about this relationship with God. I talk about hope. Um, I spent my whole life suffering from depression, and I, um, I still um, struggle with it, but I've learned to, to deal with it. I've yes. learned to handle it. And um, I speak about uh, things that even in, in the darkest of moments, that we can still find hope, we can still find love, we can still find Jesus. So I get to do this uh, at conferences across the United States. In, I'm heading over to the Philippines soon, then to India, um, Indonesia, um, uh, just uh, wherever a, a door will open, um, we go. Okay. And sometimes with a team, and sometimes just by myself. Uh, I noticed that I have an article here uh, which says that uh, some uh, Catholic Weekly saying that there's a, a movie that's going to be made. Is that still, is that happening? Well, yes, as far as I know. So there's um, my book, Breakthrough, which um, you just, you mentioned earlier. Yes. uh, 
going to be made into a movie. So they, they've got the rights for that, the film company, and now um, they're in the pre-production stage. Wow. And hopefully um, it will be, God willing, um, that, but I'm not involved in that except for a consulting role. Gotcha. I'm not going to be acting in it, so you can... You can Rest assured that I'm certainly not. I don't want to be a pop star. I don't want to. Be a... <laughs> you, you turn down pop star, you're not going to go for movie star, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. How can people stay in touch with your father? Well, I'm on social media, um, on Instagram, Twitter, um, Snapchat. Um, F, uh, it's F R R O B G A L E A. Father Rob Gallia and frgministry.com. Okay, we'll make sure that's all linked at our site as well. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Thank you, and God bless you. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Thanks for being with us over the last couple of hours as we continue talking about the things that matter most. And, uh, of course, as we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. And we'll be back tomorrow with more on Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on all of our conversations today. We'll have uh, Father Rob Galea's links there and uh, his book as well, his story about his journey from despair to hope, as well as uh, Karen Edmondson's website. And things we talked about earlier in the day, including Ron White's discussion about the letter in which Abe Lincoln debated the morality of slavery 
with himself. Uh, one more time, I wanted to offer some congrats to another member of the EWTN radio family, Aquinas Communications, 98.3 in Dubuque, Iowa, celebrating eight years with us this week. So again, congrats to uh, Tom Oglesby and the whole team at KCRD from your friends at EWTN. And uh, another thing I wanted to point out is the Catholic Feedback Podcast. This is a great thing to listen to. They connect the eternal truths of the faith to everyday life and help apply the Catholic faith in a down-to-earth and impactful manner. You can hear Catholic Feedback as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates around the world all in one place. Go to EWTM Podcast Central, EWTN.com slash radio, and click on Podcast Central. That's EWTN.com slash radio, and click on Podcast Central. You can check that out anytime you want. Uh, a final reminder about our event coming up on March 2nd. Uh, male and female, he created them, responding to gender dysphoria and truth and charity. It's on March 2nd. Learn more at AveMariaRadio.net. And we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.